In recent weeks, we've focused much on the importance of unity, particularly through Pastor Steve's series on Ephesians, where he looked at uh, unity in maturity, advancing in maturity, or, and advancing in unity. Um, today, I'd like us to consider another aspect of it, something that, when it's done well, is a wonderful, wonderful asset for each of us individually and for us as a body. It's also something that when it's not done well or not responded to well, cuts and cuts deep and it hurts and you just end up with people everywhere in pain and it's just messy. Like Some of you have got seen movies with bloodbaths and it's just not good. Well, today I want to talk about accountability, which has to do with unity in a very real way. Um, now, accountability, two, two quick definitions or of accountable. Required to explain actions or decisions to someone is one part of being accountable. Another part would be required to be responsible for something. And um, I bring them in just so we can see what dictionaries sort of say about this. But I also want to challenge us today, as we look into the Word of God, to rethink the assumptions that we have on it. Um, and we're going to start... Well, well, no, I'll start off with a question. In what ways will we have to give account for our actions? Or won't we? How do we help people around us be accountable in life? And um, <clears throat> the place I love to start is Jesus and how he held people accountable. And we're going to turn somewhere in John chapter 4, which might seem a bit odd. But it's not. It does fit. More because of what Jesus didn't say than what he did say, but we'll, we'll, we'll have a look at that in a moment. So John chapter 4, I'm not going to go through the whole story. Um, we have the woman at the well. We have a lady who has come to the well in the middle of the day, separate to the time when everybody else goes to the well in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. We have the Messiah, the Christ, a recognized religious teacher at that well at the time. And he just smashes all of our ideas about what is right. Because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. And Jews and Samaritans don't like talking to each other. There were some Jews that would walk tens of kilometres, I've forgotten exactly the figure, around the whole area of Samaria just so they didn't have to talk to these Samaritans. The Samaritan people were, were a half-caste people. They had Jewish blood, but then they'd been mixed. And so the Jews were really quite derogatory towards them. And, um, yeah, not, not nice. So, as I said, we actually learn more in this about what Jesus didn't say than what he did say. Um, 
he didn't write her off because she was a woman. Because, of course, again, in that cultural day, women could, if, if a case went to court, there would have to be two women witnesses per male witness because women could only be trusted half as much according to the culture. And you go, how does that all figure that Jesus just ignores this because he doesn't see her in the same way that we would. He doesn't see her in the same way that the good religious men of the day would have held her accountable. Um, So he talks to her, the Samaritan woman. Um, He didn't judge her. He was a religious teacher. Somebody who, whose reputation was very important. Because uh, we all know that if um, somebody's life doesn't match their words, we're not going to give them much time of day. Especially not if they're trying to teach us about morals and life and how to live. So Jesus' reputation as a religious teacher was important. The interesting thing about it, though, was that he didn't really give a whoop about what people judged him for. He, he cared about what was right. And that's why he talked to her, even though she was an adulteress. She's already had five husbands. So not only is she a divorcee, she's also now with another man. So she's a div- in a society where all of this is very wrong. Did he tell her off for her life? No. That's what we as good Christian moral people would say he should have done, isn't it? You know, come on, Jesus, you've got to correct her in this. You've got to say, no, fix up. Fix up what's going on in your life. And he didn't. I propose to you that in actual fact, he responded with care time and understanding. He did not look to her disqualifications and her problems, her isolation and the fact that she was an outcast, her sin and her sexual immorality. He saw her as someone created by God, as unique, as an individual, as a worshipper. Have a look at what they actually talk about. He, know, he sees that she's got a heart for worship. And so that's why they, they look at it. And then, not only as a worshipper, he sees her as someone called and gifted by God as an evangelist. Um, as I said, we won't and don't have time to go through the whole story, but in verse 28 to 30, we see that This is after the woman's had this revelation about Jesus is the Messiah. This is also, I believe, in the the first person that Jesus very clearly, simply says, I am the Messiah, too. And he, um, 28, the woman left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out to the city and came to him. So, 
within minutes of talking to Jesus. She's just gone off and told the whole town. That, that takes some evangelistic guts. And she's just done it. Down in verse 39, not only do we see was she eager, she was actually quite effective as well. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified that he told me all the things I ever did. So we see that Jesus, by treating her as a person, valuable, called of God, with gifts and talents, is um, releasing something in her, empowering her to be who God has created her to be. I propose to you that accountability is calling out the God-worked truths and abilities in ourselves and others. You've all possibly seen um, shirts raising awareness about people with disabilities, living with disabilities, that say, please don't diss my ability. Just have a look at the word, accountability. And um, let's give account of our abilities that and others that God has worked in our lives. Another example of seeing how Jesus held people accountable was the changing of the name of Simon. Simon, the apostle, it means listening or reed-like or grass-like, hinting perhaps at his human weakness and how easily he was swayed by the wind of the word the wind of the world. Jesus prophetically renamed him Peter. The Greek word Petros, a pebble, a stone or a small rock, and its Aramaic um, equivalent, Cephas, they weren't actually in common use as a name. They were normal words, but they weren't names before this. Um, so I guess the, the, the equivalent would be me turning around to Jamie and renaming him Concrete. Um, I don't know if you've thought about that, but I, I, I only just realised that in researching for today, that it wasn't a name beforehand. Um, a reed-like, grass-like, swaying in the wind, now gets called the rock. When did Jesus do this? He didn't do it after Peter had sorted his stuff out. He did it before Peter cut off the servant's ear when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He did it before Peter's denial and the rooster crowed. That, I would say, is him being pretty grass-like, swaying in the wind. He did it before Jesus, uh, sorry, before Peter led the disciples to go fishing because they didn't know if Jesus was coming back. Which, interestingly, Steve took us to this morning. 
Of course, now we know that Peter went on to probably be the primary leader of the early church. Um, and quite seriously, Christianity would not look as it does today without this man, without Jesus calling out the abilities and the gifts and the talents in Peter. Now, of course, Jesus does call him Simon a couple of times, but only as a little uh, challenge in his heart. You know, when, Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Simon, do you love me? After he's renamed him Peter. Just as a little, maybe a satirical, subtle rebuke to him to help him see what God had called him to be. Accountability is calling out the God work truths and abilities in ourselves and others. Accountability is helping each other see God's plan over there in our lives. It's about building our brothers and sisters up to help them realize the call of God on their lives. It's not about highlighting faults and failings because we believe that cutting off the tall poppy is good for us all. No, we need to help others shine around us and then ourselves stretch up taller in their wake. Aussies have this thing about the tall poppy and how fun it is to cut them down. And it's wrong because it's terrible. We as a church, we as the body of Christ, have to get over this. We really have to challenge our thinking on that. There are many other biblical examples we could look to as well, of course. The woman caught in adultery, where Jesus writes on the ground and then says, Hey, yeah, you who has no sin, throw the first stone. He doesn't judge her. He says, hey, where are your condemners? Neither do I condemn you. Many people believe that was Mary Magdalene. Um, We know her life. She went on to do a lot of good. She was one of the first that that, um, Jesus appeared to as after the resurrection. Whether or not that was her, either way, we can see that Jesus bringing people to account did it in a very different way than what we think of. We see the lives of David and Jonathan, where they committed to building each other up, committed to a friendship in a covenant way that would be for God's glory. We see Paul and Onesimus, where Paul writes this letter to Philemon, Onesimus's previous boss who he ran away from. And he says, hey, this guy, well, he's come to me and he's a real, really useful tool and he can be to you again. 
He doesn't say he did the wrong thing, he needs to kick up the bum and you should um, punish him. He says, no, whatever debt he owes to you, put it on my account. We see in verse 18 of Philemon. Paul and Timothy. In 2 Timothy, well, the, the whole example of Paul and Timothy and the way they, they worked. But I just want to go to 2 Timothy chapter, five, chapter 1, where Paul writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt in you, dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. Listen to all these truths that he's speaking over this young man's life. Truths that will build him up and keep him strong through all the future things when Paul won't be around. Because this letter, we believe, was written to near the end of Paul's life. Um, he goes on to say, in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. These truths, these truths, the building this young man up, that are giving him a vision of what God sees and thinks towards him. Powerful ones. Paul again, um, in all of his letters to the saints, to the saints he writes, some of us still grapple with this whole idea about us being sinners. And I don't know if you've thought about whether you're a sinner or not, but you're not. If you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you're not a sinner. You have been remade. The old is gone, the new has come, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. You are not a sinner, you are a saint, you are not a wretch, you were a wretch, and then you were saved by grace. You may still sin by doing the wrong thing. That's totally different to who you are. You have been called according to the purpose of God over your life. You and I need to start to watch our tongues. We judge other people who swear. You know, we might not say much about them, but we stop and we think about, oh, you know, that's rude. You shouldn't say stuff like that. And yet we don't watch our tongues in what we say to ourselves. We teach ourselves horrible, horrible lies as we repeat things to ourselves in our attitudes, in our ways. Instead, we are called to give account for the abilities that God is calling out of us through his work, through his grace, through his power in our lives, 
through Jesus Christ, his son. Are we sinners or are we saints? We are saints. It's a truth in the word. If you're not sure about it, come and talk to me. Read your word. Find it. It's in there. It's real. You have been made new. Unless you don't know Jesus, in which case, come and talk to me as well. Now, a bad example from Scripture about holding people to account. King David. Well, the covenant comes to town. David, well, he brings the covenant to town and he, he dances. He likes to dance. He dances in a way that just doesn't look very good. And so his wife, in, in good uh, propriety, tells him off as such and says, hey, you're going to dance around in your, in your underwear like that in front of all the women of this country? What are they going to say about you? Um, well, from the example, we see that his heart was right. He might, his dancing might not have been very pretty, but it was from a good heart. And so he simply says to her, hey, no, I dance before the Lord. And I'll be even, or dance or even more undignified than this, as the song used to go. Well, uh, Mikhail was barren because of that comment. Because she tried to call out and say, hey, you're not up, you're not according to my, what I've decided is right and wrong. Or you're not doing this from the, yeah. He, his heart was right before God. And instead of trying to build him up and telling him how good it was, like everybody else was, she was trying to tear him down. And because of that, she bore him no son or daughter. Uh, we can read about that in 2, two Samuel chapter 6. Now, of course, there are times when leaders or those with responsibility towards someone's life, like parents, must give a hard word of correction. As I mentioned before, Jesus calling Simon, calling Peter Simon as a bit of a challenge and rebuke to him, saying, hey, Peter, you're acting like Simon. Pick your game up. Those tasked with this job, do it in love for the restoration and the building up of the person, even though they don't feel like it at the time. Sometimes if we get corrected, we feel like nobody loves us. We feel like they are just mean, they're just judging, and that we want to run and hide and go do our own thing because we know what's right. Sometimes you've just got to suck it up and go ask yourself, are they doing it in love? Are they doing it for my benefit? And you've got to go to God and he will show you the way forward. Accountability is calling out the God-worked truths and abilities in ourselves and others. Now, two biblical questions we need to ask. Oh, sorry. Just two biblical questions. Genesis chapter 3 Verses 1 to 3, 
we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and that the Lord had God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. That right there should have been the end of the conversation. She knew the word of God. She knew God had said, you can eat any tree from any tree except that one. But that wasn't the end of the conversation. She dwelt on it. She let this, did God really say, turn over in her mind. She knew the word of God and she doubted it. Temptation leads to naught when we cut it off quickly with the truth of God. Actively fighting against it by preparing ourselves beforehand is the best way forward. Equipping ourselves with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Um, during the week, I challenged myself, as well as the young adults, to, to memorise the scripture that Steve led us as the theme scripture for across his series of Ephesians. Why? Because as young people, we need to arm ourselves with the sword of the Word of God. But it's not just as young people. We all need to know these things. We all need to be ready so that we can say, when we think, did God really say? We can say straight away, yes, he did. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old is gone, the new is come, because I am in Christ. My paraphrase. There's all these different truths we need to know for ourselves. Has God really said certain things? Yes, He has. I'm not just talking about scriptures, there's prophecies, there's other things, but we need to be aware. We need to stop cutting down ourselves when we start to grow a little bit. And we need to stop tearing down the tall poppies around us. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear it. You know the old... Um, Adage we grew up with, if you haven't got anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Well, that's, that's right there, pretty well, if it's not going to build someone up. But what about the talk we speak to ourselves? What about the things we think? The second question comes in just the next chapter, actually. In the story of Cain and Abel, with that memorable excuse by Cain after he's killed his brother 
Am I my brother's keeper? Are you? Are you your brother's keeper? Yes, you are. Settled and done. You're not sure? Find it in the New Testament. It says that we are one body. Christ is our head. It says that all these different things that show us very clearly we are our brother's keeper. We talk about our spiritual family as though their rank in our normal family tree is less than that of the poor cousin who lives interstate, who we only think about at weddings and funerals. Dare you believe that your family's blood be stronger than the blood of Christ, which unites us? One Thessalonians five eleven says, "Therefore encourage one another, build each other up, just as in fact you are doing." I'm not sharing all of this today because it's something we don't do. We do do it, but it's something that's so important, such gravity in it that we need to be encouraged to do it more. We need to be released and empowered as we account for the abilities that God is calling out according to his truth from ourselves and others. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's meet, let's encourage, let's stir one another up. Let's fan into flames the gift of God that is in you. Paul gives the instruction to Timothy to fan that gift himself. But we also have that wonderful privilege of fanning that in other people as well. Now, I couldn't talk about accountability without considering ourselves giving account to God at the end of our days. Many Christians still believe that they will be judged according to their sins. This is unequivocally wrong. As we have brought them to the Lord, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. He don't go fishing. As um, someone memorably said, once you've, or Corrie Ten Boom, I believe it was, once you've given them to God, he puts a little sign up that says, no fishing allowed. Yes, everyone will face our Lord for a judgment. But we know according to Scripture, that the judgment of the Christian will be a judgment for reward and not for punishment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you'd like to turn there, there's a number of verses that I'll read. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 8 through to 
16. It says, He who plants and he who waters are one, for each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. There's a thought right there. Not only are we fellow workers, God is working alongside us. We are working with him. He is on our team. We are on his team. There's a cool thought. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 3. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, whatever type of life, whatever materials they have around, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he, suffer, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God, that God's spirit dwells in you? Some of us get afraid about working for a reward. We think it's selfish. We think it's unbiblical and bad and whatever else. But hey, if it's a gift that God likes to give out of his good pleasure, it's not bad. We are called to work for a reward, just not one that happens here, not one that we'll get here. It's in the superannuation. It's the after-retirement, which of course is after our death, that we get the reward. And there's nothing wrong with working darn hard for a real good super. Because God reveals to us that that way is to work darn hard for the good of other people, building them up according to the word of God. that's tough sometimes but it's a privilege <clears throat> Jude chapter 1 verse well the only chapter of Jude verse 20 says but you dear friends by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the holy spirit keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. We're called to build, not tear down. We're called to follow his example, which was not according to what we would think of accountability, Jesus challenged people, absolutely. No questions about that. The religious teachers, well, they had hard hearts. He tore them down. 
he chose to see past, to love, to give people honour and space to be who God had created them to be. He gave them space to get over their own failings by loving them, not by stringing them up like we would like to do sometimes. We feel like we need stringing up and therefore we can't do this or we can't do that. Not how he operated. When? When do we do this? Well, Hebrews 3.13 puts it so well. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. If it's today and you've got breath in your lungs, find someone to exhort. Find someone to build up. Find someone and some way that you can call to, to account or accountability is calling out the God work truths and abilities in ourselves and others. Just a couple of practical notes that I've sort of skipped over during my thing. Some of us get messed up by this idea of prophesying over people. Ask God, speak truth, build people up. If you can, if you can tick those boxes on this message that you want to share, share it. They can consider it. They can judge it. They can go to otherwise counsel to ask God to confirm it. But if you've asked God, it's building them up and it's truthful, hey, go for it. Sometimes it's as simple as sharing a verse over somebody's life. And that was the way I got started in prophesying over people. You'd, I'd ask God, okay, what's a Bible verse for this person? I want to challenge us. Let's find ways of doing that. Maybe as people have birthdays, we can um, share scriptures over them. Maybe we can stop tearing each other down when we feel like somebody's not living up to the, what they're called to. It's good that you can see that they're not living up to who they're called to be. It's because you can see something better for them. And that's because God wants something better for them. Let's not tear them down because of it. Let's build them up. Let's remember accountability is calling out the God-worked truths and abilities in ourselves and others. It's not because they're good. It's not because you're good. You are good because God has made you good. They are good because God has made them good. So, step forward in unity as we rethink accountability, as we would challenge ourselves with the privilege of building other people up. Don't leave it to their leaders. Don't leave it to their parents. Find people we can build up. Don't wait for somebody else to, for their problem to become so big 
it needs intervention, just get quietly alongside them and say, hey, no, no, God's called you to more than this. God's got a better plan for your life. If you're not sure what it looks like, ask him. Ask the Bible. It's in there. There's lots of awesome truths. Well, some simple things, but hopefully some powerful things for us. Um, I was tossing up whether to hand over to Steve or not. I'm going to ask him to come up because it's his birthday. Yesterday. It was yesterday. Um, Thomas's was during the week, so they had a joint family dinner. Happy birthday, bro. Um, we'll sing in a second, but my challenge for you guys is to um, shoot him a text. Send him some truth over his life. Find it in the Word. Find other people. And let's make that a habit of building people up.